out with me, Cole Hagi. Did you say it was? A uh, Hangi. Cole Hangi. He's an actor. Um, anything else? Actor, musician. Well, like uh, aspiring playwright, I guess. Aspiring playwright, and you did put one. You you wrote a play that was eventually produced. Yes, I did. Uh, was it a trip to see something that you envisioned in your head, like kind of manifested into it was... reality? I mean, it's it's always weird seeing you know something you create to take its next logical conclusion, and uh, especially in when, when it comes to acting, and because as, as a writer and as an actor, what I had in my head, you know, you have kind of a clear vision on how things are going when you write stuff down, but then to see somebody take it and try to transcribe it as best they can, really to the stage, yeah. it's you know it was a wild trip, and it you know, would have been yeah, thankfully. <laughs> Uh, I was paired with Samantha Johnson. She was a fantastic director. We communicated very well. She, I'd like to think she understood my vision, you know, the best in the best possible way. And, you know, with, even though it's, you know, a little black box stage, it was as good as it could be, which was for me, fantastic. That's awesome. Was it hard to kind of give it up to someone else to direct kind of like throwing your, giving your baby off to the first, first there, grade teacher? There's always that fear when you, you know, hand, hand it off. But thankfully, Sam was very understanding. And because, you know, it's the first time it's ever produced, you know, she, she came to me a few times like, Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about nice. this? Like there were, uh, there were one or two times, like you know, just with minor stuff, like uh, design things where, we'd have like a slight disagreement of like, mm, this isn't quite what I had in mind. Let's try this or something. But, you know, what little discrepancies we have were, you know, patched up really quickly. It wasn't ever like, you no know, an argument or anything like yeah. that. It was just like, oh, no, let's try this. Like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Nice. I like you know, it. And that, and that came from both sides. You know? Nice. That, that's always good, just kind of breaking down communication of that. The, the biggest trip that I see in terms of plays... In, in comparison to like film movies is as soon as it's over like it's gone forever that is one thing that my mom laments especially because you know i i've been in a few productions and when my mom can't make it or you have family members who can't make it there's always that element of oh i missed it it's you know there's there's no going back it's it's just done but i actually had a um, a director this guy named dan stone who touched up on that and kind of gave it a, a quasi poetic or spiritual feel when it oh. comes to dealing with that thing. He uh, he related it to there's a sect of I believe Tibetan monks that he talked about, where they would create these elaborate modes. Yes, it's with <laughs> sand. You know, different colors of sand, grain by grain, making it as elaborate and as beautiful as possible. They don't take pictures of it when it is done. They just blow it to the wind and start all over. And it's like that with theater. You know, you create something beautiful. You you take time to put a piece of your soul into whatever you're doing. And then you have to admire it for what it is in that moment because that's what truly makes it special. You know, those mosaics, you know, not everybody's going to be able to see them. Not everybody's going to be able to, to hold on to them forever. But for you, your labors, your memories of it, what struggles you have... And the moment you can take to really appreciate what you've done. It's beautiful. Yeah, it, it has its own well, beauty. It'd be really it. beautiful as the writer watching it. But if you're the actor, it'd almost be, you'd have to get into such a flow state while you're acting that you wouldn't be able to really enjoy it or else I'm sure you'd trip yourself up, you know? I mean, there's always the enjoying of it in the process of making it because, you know, you explore a lot in that process and um, it's it's really interesting. And then... When it's when it's done, you know, you have your finished performances, you stop, you look back, 
and you stop and think about the emotions you felt during each performance in a lot of ways you're starting fresh each night if you're doing a theater especially um and then once it's gone it's there's there's nothing quite like it there wouldn't be have you ever cried during a role I can't say that I've had the pleasure, which I know is a strange thing to say on camera, but, you know, being able to tap into some of those emotions is harder for some than others. And, you know, crying, being able to cry on command is nothing I've really been able to do. For me, it's actually a challenge that, you know, I, I want to undergo is, you know, getting so into, you know, a dramatic piece where, you know, A, crying is necessary and B, being able to do combat that naturally. Because, you know, it's one of the most common things when it comes to acting and when it mistakes is trying to force emotion into, into whatever you're doing. If, you know, you're not crying naturally, people, people, people know. Notice. Well, it seems like almost if it was written where it wouldn't be a natural place to cry, that would be the worst time to kind right, of fake right. it. Right, and that's, and that's the thing when choosing the pieces or trying to work with whatever you have is, you know, Try, trying to make whatever emotions you come out of that moment genuine. And if, you know, your director's trying to force something, stopping and kind of adapting the character that you had in your mind to that situation. Because, you know, there's, there's always the difference between the character in the script and the character that you bring on stage. Sometimes they can be radically different. Sometimes, you know, one is just supposed to be kind of a baseboard for the other. It's, it's really fascinating, especially with, you know, older plays like uh, Shakespeare. There's a lot you can do with the different characters there because, you know, they're so human and you can bring so many different facets or elements to them. You can also make caricatures of them, which, you know, can be fun, but yeah. it's, it's always interesting seeing every single actor's different take on a specific character and the different elements of humanity they bring to them. I like it. So can, kind of during the, uh, what's it called when you're picking the actor stage? The uh, tryouts? Or? Uh, auditions. Auditions. Is yeah. it interesting to, just to see all the different people play the one character? It, it's, it always is, and it's always fun, especially because, you know, as, as an actor, I'm always in the room, and I'm, like, looking at over the people, and I'm like, oh, that's not exactly how I would do it. <laughs> or if, uh, But, you know, it, that doesn't make it any less true. I mean, obviously, there are certain points where, like, wait, no, that character definitely wouldn't be like that. But there's also moments where, like, Oh, yeah, I could see how that would work. That'd be cool. And it, it always makes you sweat when somebody comes up with an idea you're like, oh, my God, that is brilliant. That would be pretty cool. I like, do you like uh, the acting side or the writing side? More? I especially love the acting side. Nice. Just, you know, for me, it's being able to play with the script and being able to find different things that I wasn't able to before with writing. It's more you kind of tailor it to what you want or you try to form it into the moment. And in some cases, you actually don't put in as much as you would think, because as, as a playwright, while you might want to inflect certain emotions in one way, shape, or form, you have to also keep in mind what the director might want and what the actor might want to do with this performance. Yeah. You know, what different parts of you know, the human per persona that they want to explore. So you kind of get both of that with both sides. I like it. What, what got you into this in the first place? Oh, it's, uh, well, when, when I was a toddler and stuff like that, you know, my mom would like watch me in school plays and stuff like that. Like, uh, ooh, second grade, there was a little musical called like, you know, Mother Goose or something like that. It was just like a whole ton of different fairy tales brought together. Yeah. And I showed up on stage. I was in second grade. All the older kids, of course, had the more major roles. And I was just sitting there in my pajamas because I was like one of the kids of the uh, old lady in the shoe. So that was that was my first taste of theater. Nice. <laughs> and then just tons of support and love for your for kind of the craft uh, helped to kind of support it or what? S sort of kind of. I actually didn't get too much into it. I mean, there was a there was another 
you know, minor line I had for like a Christmas play in an Adventist school. When I actually started getting into it, it wasn't later in life. It, it, it was later in life. It was in college. Um, at that point, I tried a bit of acting in high school. Small town favoritism and stuff didn't really work out in my favor. I just, uh. I just didn't really like it too much. And the plays we were doing, they, they were kind of hunky-dory, didn't have a lot of meat to them. And I think that led into a kind of a, a lack of appreciation for what I was doing on stage as well. You know, I saw, you know, acting is just, oh, it's just something fun to do. Uh, it was my freshman year of college. I saw an audition for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead. I went, I auditioned, and I didn't get the role, actually. Mm. But it gave me enough interest that I signed up for a theater class. So when you went in freshman year, what was your degree then? I was studying biology. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I was, you know, the whole... You know, you, you need to be a Dr. Cole route That's or so something. That's so funny. Yeah. Like, my mom, she, she was like, you know, Cole, you can be any type of doctor you want to be. That's and funny. And my, my dad was like, you know, Cole, I'm not going to lie. You can be anything you want except a male dancer. Don't don't be a dancer. That's funny. So, you can be any kind of doctor yeah, my, you yeah, want. Yeah, my, my dancing dreams were squashed that at that point. dancing dreams were squashed. But, um... But you can't you know, they, they had high hopes for me. And, you know, we live in a very practical world where, you know, they focus on, you know, money and, you know, getting getting resources to better support yourself and your dreams outside of work is kind of the main focus. So that's, you know, it's kind of what I was going for. You know, but you, you have, shifted from having your enjoyment be outside of work yeah, to having yeah, your work be your enjoyment. Yeah, because, you know, th- I was at a certain point in my life where you have people telling you what you want to be. Yeah, that's a you know, weird thing. You know, it's a, it's a thing growing up is, you know, you have people pushing you to do one thing or another. And when you're finally on your own, you start to realize, huh, this this isn't what I thought it would be. I, I don't like this. And then you start to explore. And that's, you know, kind of what drew me to theater. You know, I was, you know, doing science classes, just kind of making it a bit of a slog. Yeah. And then finally... I went out and I just tried this theater class. You know, intro, intro to theater is more like, you know, theater history and stuff like that. But then I was required to see the play I auditioned for. Nice. And it was touching. Like, Liz Hellman directed and she did a fantastic job. The two main guys, Joseph Workman and Reed Morris, they were phenomenal. And I went to go see it a second time of my own volition because... I, I realized, you know, it's what we were talking about earlier. I might not get a chance to, you know, once it's gone, it's gone for good. And so something about it just kind of gave me this desire to try again. So my sophomore year of college, I auditioned for another another role for the college. And it was for this play called For the Love of Lies. And I took a look at the description and I was like, oh, this, this looks kind of interesting. They had like this uh, weird art style that kind of reminds you of like a old Italian theater or something. And I was like, okay, this looks interesting. I'll go take a look. I sit down at the bench, you know, kind of waiting for everybody else. I pull out my phone. Suddenly this girl comes up and sits down next to me. He's like, hey, are you here to audition for the improv show? I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. I had no experience with that sort of thing. So it threw me for a loop. Um, but... I'm not sure exactly how, because at this point I was a lot more stiff as what, a person. What's improv? What I mean, what's the so you go up and you had no lines, or people would throw you things? Well, it, 
this was a particular style that I learned about more as the project went along. Is um, I mean, I talk about a lot. It's my favorite show that I've done. Maybe my favorite. It was oh. one. It's it's among the greats, I would yeah. say. But it's the style called Commedia dell'arte, which is um, the basic gist of it is you have a general plot and certain plot points for the scenes that you run into, and then. To support that, you have stock characters who are kind of like caricatures in a lot of ways. You have like, you know, the characters who are the lovers, who are, you know, a bit dim-witted, but, you know, mean well. You have the pervy old rich guys. Um, you have the servants who are a little bit smarter than some people, but not quite. You have a character who's supposed to be like a uh, El Capitan. He's uh, a manly man, a macho man, but he... Uh, He's kind of cowardly at the same time. So you have all these different stock characters and you throw them together. You have them run through the basic plot points and everything that happens in between is completely up to them. Nice. So you have a and lot. And they don't plan it beforehand. They just kind you, of go you live. You do actually. You know, you have a lot of rehearsals and, you know, you do say certain lines sometime. But, you know, they're all they're all you and you're more than welcome to change them mid-performance like at it. the same time. So, but like but like story arc, you guys know where you're going to take it? We do. Okay, cool. Yeah, so there's general plot points. It usually involves like uh, the old man trying to sell his daughter off to some <laughs> other rich guy, which was, 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 which was a plot point for this one. It's... um. We had, you know, the, ooh, what was his name? Pantalone, who's the old rich guy. He has a sack of money that hangs between his legs. Oh, my God. And he, uh, he's going to basically pawn off his daughter, Isabella, to the character I played, Datore, who's this old fat guy. No, actually. Uh, the character of Datori is supposed to be like a, a pseudo-intellectual. That's funny. Which is kind of fitting. That's but, hilarious. <laughs> but, um... But, you know, they, they threw me in a fat suit. They gave me a mask with a mustache. And then I just basically acted like an idiot who knew everything. Yeah. So so I was supposed to marry Isabella. But at the same time, Isabella's twin brother... Uh, ooh, I, I can't remember his name. But he comes into town and everybody mistakes him for her. Mm. So at one point, I'm coming up to this guy and I'm just like, you know, mm, we're going to have such a life together. It was creepy. It was pervy. And... I like to think the crowd liked it a lot. They they seem they seem to be laughing a lot. So. That's funny. If it went a little bit further and in a play you kiss another character, is it like are you completely disconnected from the character? Like, would you you and your partner like would that be a thing at all or like? Well, obviously, you know, consent and stuff, establishing that beforehand is absolutely, absolutely. important. So as long as you have characters who are okay with it, you know, you're more than welcome to make me own body contact. Sometimes it's actually expected. There's a lot of slapstick jokes. Uh, we actually had a little bit of a gag where the character Pantalone has a heart attack and I'm supposed to resuscitate him. And it comes about in this weird kind of egregious sexual way that looks very wrong on stage. Yeah. And obviously the characters don't know what they're doing, but you know, we're, we're just trying to make it as funny as possible. I like it. To go back a minute, uh, talking about like if once it's done, it's gone. Is there like a stigma against filming plays because of that reason i would say so you know oh. it's um you i guess there's a couple reasons for it there's obviously like copyright and stuff the plays you're using there you know you only get the rights to put it on stage mm. and then once 
it's from the people I've talked to, and you know, I'm I'm not an expert in this. I'm not going to pretend to you be. You spent an expert. three or four years in it. And you're, well, you're pretty much three, an expert. Three ish. Three ish. Three ish years. That's more than most. But, that's more than ninety nine percent of people. But you know, when once you start filming it, you you get rid of the magic of the moment. That's what it seems. You know, like. it's a. Uh, that's the whole point about theater is, what you're seeing on stage is supposed to be very real. The the stakes, the weight of the characters' actions, if they make a mistake. Sometimes you have characters who are doing, you know, complex choreography on stage and, you know, mistakes can happen. So you kind of live a little bit with that tension of something might go wrong on stage and affect the performance or affect the characters on stage as well. You ever had that happen while you're acting? Someone else messes up or you mess up? I've had a couple of moments, but I I guess we can touch more upon that later. Yeah. Um, But... It's it's always scary, and it just gives it gives everything this kind of real feeling to it. So oh when you put it on camera, it it just doesn't. You don't get that same. You don't get that same feeling. And at the same time, it's it's different from having it on film. Like you know, you have you know sometimes with you know musical theater or something like that, you have film crews who are filming one night or something like that, and they have cameras set up for this. You know, just having like a camera set out in the audience, just kind of looking at everything else, you're you're gonna you're gonna miss a lot. It's you know, theater is a very different medium from film, and for a good reason, I like to think. So that's that's my take on it. Yeah. Do you like film though? Would you would you ever be in a film? I I'm try I'm trying. I actually was in an extra for a film oh, just cool. just recently. It's uh, I had like one or two lines just to say to the main character, but really I was just in the background for a for a couple of things yeah yeah but you want to go into voice acting right i do some something about something about voice acting has always really appealed to me like uh you know grew up watching the old batman and you know superman cartoons and stuff like that um and then i stopped and actually took a look at some of the actors behind it you know you have a uh, mark hamill who vo- voices the joker you have kevin conroy who voices the batman and what they're able to do with just their voice and bring to life these different characters is inspiring. And the great thing about it is, you know, a lot of times you get a lot of takes. You get to experiment a lot, even with just a single line, bringing so much dimension to a single sentence. Something about that has always fascinated me, and it's something I, I want to get into. That'd be awesome, man. So, and it also kind of just opened up a lot of doors in terms of you can live anywhere. You yeah. can be doing anything with your time. Yeah. You just probably get your lines and you're like, all right, you just say it into a mic like a hundred times each. Yeah, that's what a lot of uh, the higher up voice actors do. Like uh, I believe there's one guy, Steve Bloom, who's very famous, especially for um, you know providing voices for anime and stuff like that. He essentially has made his own little studio in his house, just like nice. uh, a couple of little portable walls, some soundproof stuff, and a microphone, just some basic equipment, and he's able to basically phone in his lines. Um, obviously, phone that, in has a connotation. That doesn't I mean, mean like I, fake I don't. It. <laughs> I don't mean that. I don't mean that in the um, with the with the negative connotations of it. I mean that in the sense that you know he's able to get the call. Mm-hmm. He's able to experiment, and he's you know knowledgeable. And he probably knows who he's working with, so he can bring out the best product and uh, the different variances that a producer or a director might want. Yeah. If, if money wasn't a thing, would you still want to do that? Yes. Yes. Yeah? You know, vo- Not just because it's like the easiest way to make a living in this kind of field, but you would... You, I, w- you'd... I wouldn't say it's the easiest from what I understand, but... Ooh, you know, it is. I, Maybe I'll get into it. Oh, really? 
Or no, I'm saying what is the easiest because that'd, that'd be fun to get into. Huh. Well, I mean, directing is probably one of the hardest because everyone wants to direct. Yeah. And, you know, you, you're always going to need, you know, actors and stuff. But I think it's, you know, a lot of people who are behind the scenes as well. Mm. You know, you have technicians, you know, who work with sound or lights. Just um, so many people who you don't see. And I don't think they get enough appreciation for what they do. So then, then again, like I said, not an expert. I don't know half of what goes on. I just usually show up on a, on a set or, yeah, or and that's start the beauty a of rehearsal. It. I like it. Um, so during those three years, what? because I took one theater class. I had a blast in it. What I noticed more than anything is that everyone else in the class pretty much knew each other for years. So it seems well, like you got a bigger, you got a much better sense of community in college than I did. Well, it's especially because when you're, when you're working on those different projects, it's a... Uh, you interact with these people pretty much every single day. You are working together and building something together, and you naturally bond over it. And uh, we also have our own little events where we uh, we kind of strengthen that bond. And we always find you know friends who we hang out with more. Like uh, I met a lot of my best friends through college in theater just because you know we were hanging out more. And they're like, hey, let's do this, that, and then suddenly. A couple months down the line, we're we're the best of friends. Nice. Yeah, and you know, there's there's always the cast parties as well for you know a production. Those are always a blast to be at. The and beauty of it is it's connected or it's networking too. Like if one of them eventually gets a successful career, you could always be like, hey, remember how good of an actor I am or screenwriter? Or whatever. Absolutely. You know, that's one of the things about you know the the acting world. You know, it's always connections, and that's you know one of the reasons why you know making friends is so important. Um, not, not to say that, you know, you should always just, um, make friends just for the sake of connections. I went in originally just expecting that you know, this would just be something I do in my spare time. And little did you know, little, little did I know. <laughs> Cold doctor died <laughs> off that day. No. Uh, do you think you'd be happy if you did never find a theater and just kind of stay in the doctor route? Honestly, I don't think I would be. You know, one, one thing I realized, you know, when it came to academia and stuff like that, and maybe it's because I was doing theater and that was just an extra thing on my plate, but, you know, a lot of the classes I was taking were designed to kind of like winnow out the people who couldn't hack it. And it was just a weed yeah. out. They're all weed out yeah, classes. Yeah, I don't, honestly, I don't think I'm one of the people who, who could have made it. And I'm glad that I actually saw that, you know, sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Um, I, I commend anybody who can make it in that. But for me, if I somehow did... And I had to do that for the rest of my life. I'd, I'd be a very miserable person, I think. That'd be rough. But so now you're here. And as far as I'm aware, it's a lot harder to make a living in the arts. Do you think it's possible? Do you think what, what can make it easier? Or? I, it's absolutely possible to make it in the arts. But, you know, a lot of times, especially when you're starting out, you're going to have to find other ways to support yourself at the same time. You know, it's common for a lot of, you know, beginning actors to have what they call a survival job, you know. Um, usually something part-time, something flexible so that they can work it around acting gigs and the like. And some will work two or three jobs to do, or depending on, you know, what they need to do. But thank, thankfully, a lot of times with theater, with other productions, it's not just something you give into when you start out. There's a lot that, you know, they'll say, oh, we'll give you like a, a, a stipend or we'll pay you X amount of money for X amount of hours with, you know, some productions actually guaranteeing a certain amount of hours you're going to work on a certain day. So it's, it's the hardest to start out in. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's, it's very discouraging, especially for some people, you, 
you're not going to be able to get every single rule that you want. It's it's a lot of rejection. A lot of rejection. That tears people and that's, down. Yeah, and you know, that's one of the big things about you know being an actor is you're going to be said no to a lot. Yeah. Like uh, even even if you have your hopes high up for something like um, the other day. I was actually asked to audition for a play over at uh, Oregon Contemporary Theater here in Eugene. Oh, cool. Yeah. And it's a um, really interesting play, actually. A- anybody who's listening, you should check it out. It's like a, a curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. My friend Nate is playing the lead in that. Score. Yeah. So, um, but I was asked to audition by one of the directors, uh, Craig Willis, and that is by no means a guarantee that you're going to get a part. It's just an opening for an audition. So sometimes even when you're networking, it doesn't mean you're going to be getting a job. It just means you get the chance. Mm-hmm. And that's very discouraging for a lot of people. You know, just being able to fight for a chance to get to something while at the same time trying to make it through the grind that is everyday life. Absolutely. It's, Do you guys ever get drama and kind of resentment? If so, if you really want to roll more than anything and then a friend just comes in and grabs it from you? There's there's always kind of that rivalry I I like to think I haven't fallen into that trap. And I think, you know, emotionally speaking, it is a trap. I think when you, somebody does succeed, you know, be, by all means, be happy for be them. Because ha- you want them to be happy for you when you succeed. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and who knows down the line, they might be able to help you. Or, mm-hmm. But the moment you start getting resentful, that's just another barrier that's going to keep you down. It's going to affect, you know, the way you interact with other people. It's going to affect your performances. It's just... It's a slippery slope. Yeah. An interesting thing you said there is an emotional trap. I'm curious, what are your views on emotions seeing as that it's kind of your job to be be emotionally flexible and like an emotional chameleon kind of thing? Well, at the risk of sounding sociopathic, you know, when it it comes to like, you know, handling emotions in everyday life, you know, you have to have kind of a um, an emotional center. You're just kind of like a, a neutral, if you will, or... At, at least for me personally, for some people, they can be, you know, their wacky selves or, you know, all sorts of different people. But when you step into a role, you have to stop. You have to be able to identify with the character you are and mold yourself to them. Like you were saying, it's kind of like being a chameleon and being able to bring those emotions out of you. It makes you stop and wonder, hey, wait a second. I'm basically trying to draw these emotions from nowhere. And in some cases, you're you're succeeding. It makes you wonder how disingenuine you are sometimes in real life. <laughs> so it's um because do you ever like hit that part when you're just having regular when you're not acting, just kind of inter- like talking with people normally, and you see yourself kind of acting almost or what? In some ways, but I think a lot of people do that. You know, wow. you know one, one thing because I got my official degree in speech communication. Score. Yeah, and then you know I've got the minor in theater, but. You know, there was uh, a few different classes who basically harped on the same point is um, a lot of people will mold themselves to, you know, different situations. It's not them necessarily being disingenuine, but it's showing a different side of them that they wouldn't normally show. And sometimes you have to bring that side of things into acting, you know, because a lot of times, you know, when you're acting, you're pretending to be something you're not. But sometimes what you're doing is you're shifting a different facet of yourself. You're trying to bring a genuine part of you that you normally don't bring out into the light. 
That'd be a lot, man. I don't think I could, I don't think I could get that emotional. And then, I mean, that'd be exhausting. That'd be draining by the time you go home for the day. It'd be as draining as like an eight hour job. Well, for, for a lot of people, it's, it can like, oh, my, my first acting teacher, my first acting teacher, Nathan Bush, that's one thing he mentioned is, you know, a lot of times by the end of whatever you're doing, you're going to be emotionally drained, <sighs> but then, you know, you just kind of have to pick up yourself up and then, you know, do the same thing over again the next day. Yeah. Um, which... So- which is why I think it's nice to have an emotional center, you know, kind, yeah. kind, kind of that neutral to be in. And when we go back to the idea of emotional traps, it's when I talk about that, it's not so much, you know, a distraction for like, you know, where you are centered emotionally, but it's it's kind of um, the, the best way I can describe it. It's kind of like a, a psych- psychological trap or something like that, where if you start focusing on the negatives or how people hurt you, you stop, you, you start to become irrational in, in some ways. I mean, some people can be very methodical about how they deal with rage, but at the same time, it's at the same time focusing on one element or another that is holding you back yeah. and can be harmful to the people around you. So you have to stop, take a deep breath, relax, and... I hate to sound cliche, but look on the bright side of things. Mm-hmm. Unless you're method acting, like if you did the whole Joaquin Phoenix thing where you kind of actually pretended to go off the deep end. Like. Met- method, method acting is one of those things you read about. And I think to a large degree it's been sensationalized in the oh, media. Okay. Um, but for those who can do it you know, and do it well, you can have some very successful performances. But at the same time, you know, I had an acting teacher who touched up on this. You there's always that risk because the whole idea of method is becoming as much like your character as possible. That can be psychologically or emotionally damaging to yourself in the process. Like um, the most common example, you have Heath Leather's joke, Joker who... Um, like locked who, himself in like a hotel room for like a week, yeah, didn't Yeah, and um, I think that contributed to some previous issues that he had. And then uh, if I if I remember correctly led to some kind of drug overdose a lot of times what you pour into your work you're going the to joker get back. is not an actor that i'd want to get into that i'm, much, I'm not gonna know? lie you know as as a voice role it's something i've always wanted to do just you'd because, play the you joker know, you wouldn't want to be batman not really i don't i don't think i i can pull off batman you know batman give me your best i'm batman i'm batman <laughs> well well obviously you have you know different takes on it but yeah. uh I'm Batman. All right, I can it's, see it. It's not the best, I yeah, like to think. But, it's fine, but, but yeah, you're but, more Joker. Yeah, but, you know, the, the great the great thing about, you know, Joker <laughs> is, you know, there's there's a musicality to his voice. You yeah. know, there's a, uh, so many different stuff that you can do with him and still be genuine to the character. You can be as goofy or as sinister as you like. I like it. Yeah, but, it's, you know, that, it's a role that I'd want to do, but not one I'd want to get sucked into. Yeah. Especially because you you see a lot in the media nowadays, you know, there's like people who kind of like take the Joker and, I don't know, kind of idolize him or make him into something he's like not supposed movie. to be. Like, like the new movie. Um, you pumped for it? I'm, I'm pumped for it. It looks nice. absolutely amazing. But at the same time, people are going to see it, I think, and probably get the wrong message out of it. What's the, like, how can there be a wrong message? Isn't it whatever the message well, the director wants? Well, there's, you know, the message that the director is trying to tell. And, you know, you have what appears to be a character story about, you know, somebody who's, you know, driven mad by what society has basically done to him. 
and a lot of people are going to say this and kind of let that be a factor in their lives to kind of justify what they might do, whether it's right or wrong. Mm. Um, the the risk you run when doing any sort of movie where you have a deeply flawed character who has tr- who's trouble and who's issues is justifying what they do or romanticizing it. So romanticizing all this it. Ted Bundy stuff coming out. Absolutely, you know, a lot of people will say that this, and they'll see somebody that they are supposed to relate to. A lot of times, I think what these movies are trying to go for is you're supposed to sympathize with the character, but not emulate them. And I think in society, when you know we make it, we make these sorts of characters a spectacle, we always run that risk. Absolutely, and I agree with most things to the point where I'm like, I won't watch any of those serial killer serial killer stories because it's just toxicity. I don't want to support anyone like any more of those movies getting made to pick new people. But the thing that did it perfect, did you see Narcos on Netflix by chance? I haven't actually. So it shows Pablo Escobar who did horrible things, but you empathize with him so deeply because you're like, he was just doing it for his family, man. Like it does it so well. And I think it touches up on something that, you know, we, we like to forget sometimes, especially in today's society is, you know, when it comes to a lot of people, you know, who we regard as monsters, of course you have people who are like psychopaths who feel absolutely nothing, but a lot of the people who have killed, who have raped, there's something about them that is disturbingly human. You know, a lot of times, you know, they come from very human places or they have moments where you stop and say, wait a second, I can relate with that. Like there was a picture of Adolf Hitler playing with, you know, his dog, a German shepherd. Hitler, you know, it it's kind of unsettling when you stop and realize, huh, Hitler was a dog person. And he probably thought he was doing right. Like all these people that do these horrible things aren't like, I'm just so malicious. They're like, they in their eyes are being good guys. Mm. Some sometimes they are, you know. Yes. Some sometimes you have people who know that they're not doing the right things, but will do them anyway. But for personal gain, or why would someone do it otherwise? I'm not entirely sure. Maybe they there's a certain level of cognitive dis- dissonance that you know some people run into when when dealing with some of these people, um, or you know they fall into what we we're talking about before emotional traps and. With, with some people are more fragile than others and it lets them go into make them do terrible things like um there was a there was an interview i was watching speak speaking of serial killers i i went down that youtube rabbit hole and started watching a uh, you know a couple different interviews there was one with this guy ed kemper and he did some absolutely terrible things to you know some college co-eds and he actually even went and killed his own mother oh jesus but you know, he was talking about it, and, you know, he's absolutely remorseful for what he did. But when he talks about it in the moment, he's talking about how his mother emasculated him, humiliated him, and mistreated him for a lot of his life. And it drove him to do something, you know, absolutely terrible. It's, you know, ultimately, I believe it's up to every person to, you know, be a good person and, you know, ignore, you know, whatever terrible drives they have. But you can stop and you can understand and that's what's absolutely disturbing about a lot of these people is maybe not ignore the drives that they have, but maybe try to digest and understand and move past in a healthy or way. So, or somehow if you ignore co- it, that or cope, or you know, yeah. find a healthy way to get past them. There's um, you know, that's that's the thing about you know people nowadays. It's a uh, we a lot of us are monsters, and it's unsettling to stop and sympathize with somebody and say, huh. 
if I were in their shoes, would I do the same thing? Which, you know, it's a common thing in the media as well. You know, you take a look at movies like Taxi Driver or Joker and you stop and wonder, huh, what if I was in that situation? Especially with Taxi Driver. Because if you ever go into a big city for a while, you just start being less human. You just start losing touch with reality the longer you go in a big city. Yeah. Thankfully, you know, I I haven't had that pleasure of living in a big big city yet. So I I can't speak, you know, as an an expert on the subject, but from what I've seen and what I understand, a lot of it has to do with, you know, you have a lot of broken people. And, you know, when you have broken people who, you know, lash out, who become cold or indifferent to each other, that affects, you know, the next person and then the next person, the cycle just continues. You know, you have basically this, this giant Petri dish of people who who want nothing to do with each other or who are trying to exploit each other in some way. And, you know, you just start to realize how much people lose their humanity. Yeah. Well, speaking of losing humanity, earlier you said some people are just psychopaths or sociopaths. And looking into it, I think it's always portrayed as bad. But if you think of the word sociopath, someone who doesn't follow society's rules... Well, I think, you know, the term's definitely been stigmatized before. You know, there's a lot of people who are psychopaths in society who are completely functional and who might actually be a little bit offended if uh, you you just generalize psychopaths as absolute monsters. Well, and if are, you only set their role models up as being monsters, then a, when you absolute, get diagnosed abs- as it, absolutely. You the know, determinism. You see, you, and especially, you know, in today's media, you see a lot of it in TV, you know, it's like the, psychopath, Psycho. the psychopathic <laughs> villain who yeah. just, I don't feel anything. But, you know, it's, um, it's more complex than that. You have a lot of people who are just trying to live their best lives. And it's, you know, a lot of times it's not their fault that, you know, they feel or, you know, the lack thereof of feeling. I think it's more rational than anything is to be a sociopath. Because if you look at the system, the one that it tries to put you into, tries to fit you in this box of, all right, you go and you either get a house and you have a kid. So you're trapped. You have to have a job. And your wife probably or your partner probably has to have a job. And then you wake up in the morning. You got to force feed yourself and shit and drive commute to go to a job and your, your partner goes somewhere else and your kid goes to a third place. I, 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 I get what you're saying in the, in the idea that in today's society, it might be practical to be sociopathic. Well, understandable at the very least to be, to not right. ascribe to society's right. morals. But, you know, that's, I think that's the whole point of, you know, being alive and being human is, you know, we, ha- we have to have that drive to be better than just, than just practical or... Better than practical? What do you mean? Well, a lot a lot of times, you know, if we begin to shut off those parts of humanity that are inside us, you know, we become cold, we become indifferent. A lot of times what you're going to end up with is a very miserable person, you know, somebody who, who doesn't feel alive and probably because they don't feel like they're living. You know, a lot of times somebody who is enjoying life to the fullest, who, you know, is... They're, they're kind and caring because they aspire to be more than just practical. They aspire to be, you know, to, to feel for other people or to do something that is, you know, greater than themselves. It's, you know, do I you? think a fundamental part of being human is, you know, trying to, trying to break your, break your own limits or trying to do new things or help other people. Do you think plays help other people? Or I'm curious what your goal is. Absolutely. Art is one of those facets that is meant in a lot of ways to to expose different things and some of that is you know how to be human you know artists you know 
a lot in a lot of ways an Im- imitation of life or a reflection of it. Invitation of life, I like that. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's a common enough term in in the theater world, but uh, I'm not going to claim originality points for that. <laughs> but it's a um, it's a lot of ways it's showing different parts of the human condition or how we can live, and for some people it's enlightening. I could imagine, I could imagine it'd be really hard to try to do all that if you're currently going through a lot. Like, do you ever go up on stage when you have, when you're in your own depressive or anxious state? Like you, you're thinking about other things. Like Mm -hmm. how could you close that off to be an actor at that time? You know, know, sometimes, sometimes you just have to lose yourself in, uh, in the heat of the moment. Sometimes I know some people talk about like having a switch or something like into like a flow state kind of thing into like flow state or, or flow state or just being able to kind of turn it off mm. if you will you know it's it's different for every single person and you know sometimes it works well sometimes it doesn't you know depending on who you are and whatever you're going through at the time you know sometimes you're just kind of overwhelmed by you know outside life and that's going to definitely affect your performance um i don't think there's one single right way to do it and sometimes it's not meant to not meant to happen sometimes you're supposed to use some of that outside stuff to kind of um help affect your decision especially when considering you know all the different facets that go into acting when you step on stage you're always sometimes going to bring a little piece of yourself into you even though you're going to be trained to you know cut it off as much as possible there's always that little piece of you in there because it's you who's on stage doing all this stuff and it's going to affect your performance yeah and that's where you're going to see same character nuanced a little bit nuanced a little bit and always played a little bit differently you know that's one of the things about that's one of the great things about going on stage is you know every single time there's going to be something that's a little different whether it be how somebody carries themselves on stage or just even a single movement of the hand or the eyebrow or something can reveal so much about what a person is feeling in that moment. And at that point, you've got somebody who is completely different. Love it. Hey, would uh, if anyone's listening and wants to maybe hire you for voice acting work, do you want to pitch your social media or email or where people can reach out to you? Well, I, I don't have a voice reel up and going yet, but, you know, I'm always on Facebook. I'm on uh, Casting Calls Portland. And I've got an Instagram that's, you know, kind of up and running. So, uh... Uh, just just look me up on Facebook, Cole Hengi, last name H-A-E-N-G-G-I. Beautiful. All right, I appreciate your time, man. I had a blast. All right, thanks for having me on the show, Tiger. Thank you. Thank you.